0: Uh, the churches uh, down south are getting a lot of attendance today. Because, you know, a lot of hunters that go out for the weekend, they take... never mind. Um, I will tell you also, while we're on the subject, just so you can find the hunters that cut church today, that we're dealing with the Psalms as the deer pants for streams of water. Psalm 42. You tell all the deer hunters that we had, like, biblical advice on finding the deer. And they missed it. Um, okay. That was, anybody need a lesson? Mark kraber has got one. Uh, uh, grab one and raise your hand up high. Today is, we've got some down here that need it, Dorothy and John and some others. Um, today we're looking at the Psalms. And we're going to do that today, and we're going to do that next Sunday, God willing, as well. Uh, this is a little bit uh, different kind of class because we're dealing with something that we have not dealt with yet in the Old Testament. We've got, uh, um, I'm too blind to see, but all may not have heard it, is a um, pretty good story. fellow was uh, studying Hebrew at seminary. They were translating Ruth, which is a standard text to translate uh, uh, in, in about second year Hebrew. And and they're reading through Ruth, and the one fellow comes this word, R U T is the sound of it. Of course, there's not really a U uh, in Hebrew. Uh, so root, root, and he couldn't figure out what that word was. Root. Of course, he's translating the book of Ruth, and um, he never lived that down out of seminary. That was uh, he did not go on to be the Hebrew professor. Um, <clears throat> I will tell you a similar story. That's right. It was not at our, at our visitor seminary. It was another seminary. But I will tell you, the seminary uh, 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 that, that I attended, uh, uh, I was studying. Um, I had signed up to translate psalms, which is about a third or fourth year Hebrew class. Psalms are very hard to translate because it's poetry. And it turned out I was the only student who had signed up to take psalms in Hebrew and translate them. And the school where I was would not cancel the class because you were the only student. So I still had the class. Professor Clyde Miller was the instructor, bless his heart. And uh, he was a real finicky kind of guy. And he always was doing this with his lips. <laughs> and he came in, and, and we'd call him Professor Miller, and he would call me Mr. Lanier. And he came in. I came in the first day, and it's just me in this classroom. And he comes in, I said, Professor Miller, am I... In the right place at the right time? And he said, yes, you are. And I said, "Uh, where is everybody? Well, Mr. Lanier, it it looks like you're the only student that signed up to translate the Psalms. And I said, wow. um, Do we want to just cancel it? And he said, no. And this is no reason to drop formalities. So you pick your seat out, and I'll do the seating chart. (laughs) honest truth honest truth what's brought that story to mind was the the, the he said why don't we start out translating some today And typically in Hebrew class, I always like to get a running start. You'd know what you were going to translate ahead of time. And I'd spend hours trying to get my translation up and ready to go. He said, "Uh, I'm handing you uh, uh, some Hebrew poetry. Let's start here. And it was uh, uh, Hebrew poetry copied, but it didn't have any of the numbers. I didn't know which psalm it was. I didn't know what the verses were. And I start looking at it, and I'm really starting to struggle. And I'm trying to do it by sight, and I'm going along. And you get so embroiled in it, like the fellow doing Ruth, that you miss the obvious. I had slugged through a verse and a half. And I was struggling with this word in this form. And and I couldn't get it. And only then did it occur to me... Okay, let's see. So far I've gone through, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I ought to be able to figure this one out. I had not even realized I was in Psalm 23. Anyway... Um, if you, uh, uh, um, here's my request for today and my request for next week. We're going to get into some parts of the Psalms that are a little, um, uh, I don't want to say intellectual, but, but it's, it's much more scholastic and much less motivational in some ways. Then we've got parts today that are motivational. The class is divided in half. Those of you who like the um, scholastic approach will enjoy hopefully both halves. Those of you who hate the scholastic approach, but stay in here anyway because it's on the way to the car after church, um, I would ask you you can you can ignore a lot of what I'm saying at the start and hang on for the end, okay? Um, but I want to throw the start in there because so much of the time we don't get it. Now, before we get to the scholastic, we have the basic questions we ask of any of these books we're going through. First. Who wrote the Psalms? Well, a lot of different people wrote the Psalms. Scripture gives credit to the Holy Spirit for the inspiration of the Psalms, and, and uh, uh, that we, we concur with holy. Uh, There's a pun there, we concur with holy. But um, who actually wrote the Psalms? We've got uh, uh, any number of people. There are Psalms of David, uh, at least uh, one Psalm of Moses, um, Asaph, sons of Korah, There are lots of indications that lots of different people wrote the Psalms. We don't exactly know um, who wrote which, and many of the Psalms themselves, we don't have any idea who wrote, uh, other than the fact that that biblical prophets saw fit to include it within Scripture, and we know that it comes, in that sense, from God. But who the human author was is unknown to us most of the time, actually, uh, for reasons I'll show you in a minute. Who put this book of 150 Psalms together for us? Well, again, um, there's probably not one person answer to that. And let's talk about it for a minute. The Psalms themselves span Israel's biblical history. We have from Moses, which is the time of the Exodus, all the way up after the exile when the Jews are returning from Babylon. And so you've got a time span of, oh, heavens, over a thousand years there. And most likely, it makes good sense, and, and, and my understanding of the evidence seems to indicate uh, uh, that, that the scholars are correct when they say that the Psalms were being put together over the course of, of Israel's history. It wasn't something where all of a sudden in 400 uh, B.C., uh, Ezra sat down and, and gleaned out 150 psalms and put it together and said, okay, here's what we're going to use to worship in the new temple that's being built. Um, uh, it's something that had been being put together over the span of Israel's history and added to and supplemented as time went along. Um, okay. The psalms, uh, most evidence seems to indicate, were actually used as a hymn book, if you will, um, that's not true in the sense that they had copies for everybody when they came in. But those conducting the worship services in what scholars call the Second Temple probably use the Psalms in those. Now, do you all remember what the Second Temple is? Those of you in here, First Temple was built by Solomon, and it got ripped to shreds with the Babylonian captivity. Then Nehemiah, Ezra, those guys come back, and the temple is rebuilt. That's the Second Temple. There's actually going to be a third temple we'll learn about later, which is Herod's temple. But uh, right now, there's an indication that when the Jews came back from exile, they went to the second temple, and the worship service that was conducted was conducted using the Psalms as a hymn book, if you will. Um, Okay, this is... uh, I told you that. Now, why is the Psalms in the canon? Next question. Why is it in Scripture? Why do we consider it part of the Bible? Well, the first... Answer is, uh, uh, we need to understand that the decision to put it in the Bible was an early decision. This is not something that was done uh, at the Council of Jamnia in the first century in Jerusalem. This is not something that was done uh, 100 or 200 years even before Christ. The decision was fairly early because these were recognized by most all prophets and all of God's people as God's uh, uh, work. And so um, we don't know exactly when the decision was made because it predates our ability to put a finger on the decision. Um, The Dead Sea Scrolls have an interesting uh, comment in one of the, the texts that have been found where they say, we have written to you that you should examine the book of Moses and the words of the prophets and David. You remember the Old Testament, sometimes the Jews divided it up into three different groups. There was the Torah, which were the first five books of Moses, um, or the five books of Moses, Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was the law. Then the second division were the prophets, which included Joshua and Judges and and books like that. And then the third section were the writings, or the holy writings. And sometimes uh, Jews at the time referred to those as the Psalms or the, the writings of David because that was the largest bulk. ...of those writings. That the Dead Sea Scrolls people refer to that is not... ...all by itself, because we can actually read Jesus saying in Luke 24... much the same thing. Jesus said, everything must be fulfilled... ...that's written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. So we see that, that in the, the communities uh, like produced the Dead Sea Scrolls... Uh, ...you see that in the life of Jesus... Uh, uh, By that time, the Psalms were already recognized not only as part of Scripture, but the core, uh, the main part of the third grouping of Scripture. Um, How reliable are our texts? Next question. Our texts are fairly reliable, general answer. The translations are are good too, though the translating is generally the harder part than finding the real text. Um, It is interesting, and I'll show you next week with one of the Psalms we're going to look at uh, next week, Uh, There was a psalm that, uh, uh, Psalm 145, there was a psalm that a verse was missing in out of our Hebrew text for years and years and years and thousands of years, not thousands, but for for at least uh, a thousand years that we're aware of, out of the Masoretic text as it's called. And that verse was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you have a Bible that's within the last 50 years, the text is going to be in there. If not, if it's older than 50 years or some weird strain of a Bible, then this added verse is not in there. Now, you may be thinking, Lanier, how did they know the verse was missing? Well, you could come back next week and find out, or I'll just tell you real quick one cool little fact. Some of the Psalms are written where um, the, the Hebrew alphabet is followed so that you've got for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet a verse are sometimes like in Psalm one nineteen eight verses. But, but for example, in the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter, which uh, is kind of like our A, Uh, let's see, except it's a Hebrew Aleph. um, The Hebrew Aleph is uh, uh, right there. And then you've got the Hebrew B, which is the Beit. You've got the Hebrew, it doesn't have the C there. It next goes to a G, which is a Gimel. If you keep going down, after you get to the Hebrew letter M, which is a mem, it is the, the name of it in the Hebrew, it, it looks almost like that when you script it, but the Hebrew M is followed by the Hebrew letter N, or noon, and then followed by the Hebrew letter S. Well, this is a, a Psalm 145 is a psalm where it's got the A, the, the B, the the. C-D-E-F-G, to put it into English letters. But you get down to it and it doesn't have an N. So why did the guy write the psalm and have every letter in the alphabet doing a verse except the N? You know, and some scholars have speculated, historically it's fun to read what they say. Some of them say, this is very clearly an intent by the author to draw attention to the da-da-da-da. Nah. It got lost in some of the, the manuscript copying and it was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Psalm of one, Psalm 145 that was found uh, there at Qumran. So our texts have added it as a second half of verse 13. Um, we'll look at that in more detail. But bottom line is, we've got a pretty reliable text other than, um, I mean, adding that to it. And uh, um, so let's keep going. Next issue. If you've got a Bible, open it up. And let's start with, for example, Psalm, uh, just an early Psalm. One, two, three, something like that. Uh, Let's go to Psalm 3. Yeah, we'll just go to Psalm 3. All right, this is my NIV that I've put up here, my NIV study Bible, like uh, uh, you've been provided uh, if you're in here. You know, Philip... Sometimes we've got to figure out why this just looks like green pea soup. (laughs) I mean, that's just, this is not green paper. Um, Anyway, Psalm 3, if you look at it, it's got a title here. Under Psalm 3, it says, A Psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. You see that? That wasn't in the original psalm. That title is not part of inerrant scripture. Um, that title is an addition that uh, if you turn the page and you look at Psalm 4, for example. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. That is not an instruction from the Holy Spirit for us to give this to Dick Hill for use only with violins as opposed to horns. Okay? This is... Um, Uh, These are very old titles. They're very old uh, um, instructions. They're in the Septuagint, which we're dating somewhere around 150 to 200 B.C. We know that they were in there for a long time. We know that they were used, but they are not part of the inspired psalm itself. And that's useful to know because sometimes the titles aren't always correct. One psalm has David fleeing from... Uh, uh, the wrong king. One psalm has David uh, 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 being captured and taken to Gath when when Scripture tells us that he he went there on his own volition. Um, So the titles are not always accurate, but the titles are there. They are very ancient, and they give some information. Well, what kind of information do they give us? They give us some musical directions that, quite frankly, are lost. Some of the psalms will be, this is a psalm you're to sing to this and this tune, for example. We don't know that tune. Uh, I've tried to work it out to green sleeves because I like green sleeves and everything else seems to fit. But um, that psalm in particular doesn't seem to be green sleeves. So we've got musical directions. Um, another example is you'll find in a number of psalms the word selah. Have you all seen that before? S E L A H. Um, I'll put it back up here in just the page that I was open to, Psalm 4. It says, In your anger do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. I've been in churches where the person reading the scripture reads the Selah. Um, I've made good knock-knock jokes out of Selah. And they make as much sense as just about anything else because no one really knows what Selah means either. It's a musical direction. It may mean an interlude or a pause, some scholars think. But most scholars point out that we really have no reason or basis for for believing that. Um, um, It is clearly some type of an instruction or direction uh, that's been lost. And maybe one day God will see fit to open our eyes to what it is. Uh, Right now, in my understanding of Scripture, it doesn't make any difference what it is to us or else God would reveal it. Um, But it's in there, and we should keep it in there because we find it in the text, and one day it may be something that we do understand. But right now, Selah is some type of a musical instruction uh, uh, that that is lost uh, on on us. So, next question. Why are they called Psalms? Well, the Hebrew word is Tehillim, which, oh, I hope I did this right, yes. Or Philip did. Thank you, Philip. Um, Tehillim... Uh, uh, take out the T part and just the H-L-L sound. H-L-L is the Hebrew word for praise. Okay? Most Hebrew words are built around three consonants. And you take those three consonants and you mix them all up and you change them and you... You swap them, you play, move the hat with them if they're weak ones, and, and you do all sorts of things, and you come up with almost all Hebrew words. But almost all Hebrew words are built off of three consonants. And the three basic consonants for praise are H-L-L, those sounds. And um, um, the Hebrew word Tehillim is uh, uh, an adequate description of the Psalms, but not total, uh, because the Psalms contain more than just Psalms of praise. The Greek um, took uh, uh, the word psalmoi and used it for uh, uh, the title of the book. Psalmoi originally referenced plucking a string instrument. Um, uh, the actual plucking process was psalo. And uh, somewhere that became singing eventually. Uh, uh, scholars aren't quite sure when and where but sometime around the first century that was most likely meaning singing to some extent. Psalmoi at that point means songs. And so that is where we get our English title from uh, because in fact what the Psalms are are songs to some degree, but not totally. Not all of them are meant to be sung as Psalms. What all of the Psalms are, however, is poetry. And so this is our poetry class for today. When I was growing up, I was not too big on poetry. I think that's because my father ruined poetry for me at an early age. Um, You go back to the early poems you learned. Uh, Roses are red, violets are blue. Um, Sugar is sweet, and so am I. That's what my dad says. Or let's see, he changed that one up to roses are red, violets are blue. Most poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. So I'm growing up with this type of poetry and it just never really sparked a flame in me. Um, When I took Becky out in high school, I probably quoted some poetry to her, but neither she nor I have any memory of that. Um, Hebrew Psalms are poetry. This is a collection of poems. See, our Bible knowledge in this class has got to open wide up because the Bible is not just written as a how-to book. How to, please God and make sure you're in heaven forever. The Bible is God's word to us that's meant not only to make us wise in ways of salvation, not only meant to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ, but also meant to inspire us, meant to comfort us, meant to teach us, meant to give us direction, All of these different kinds of things, and God did it not just in a how-to manual, but he did it with song, he did it with allegory, he did it with with, uh, poetry, he did it with all sorts of tools, uh, being the creative God that he is. Now, if we look then at this Hebrew as poetry, here is the, we're we're merging now into the scholastic end of this today. Um, Oxford's Shorter English Dictionary defines poetry as the following. The expression of thought, imagination, or feeling in a language and a form adapted to stir the imagination and emotions. Think about that for a minute. and let's, Because this is, this is an important point if you want to buzz of the scholastic end of Psalms. The expression of thought, imagination, or feeling in a language and a form Adapted to stir your imagination. God's got poetry here to stir your imagination. To stir your emotions. To inspire you. To make you start thinking. And that's that's what poetry is. And um, I've tried to break it up. We're going to have Hebrew poetry in a form that will stir your imagination. We're going to look at it. It's going to stir it. Your imagination will not be unstirred when we're done. Your emotions will be stirred. They will not sit still because of the poetry we're going to be looking at. Um, what thoughts, what imaginations, what feelings are you going to have stirred up? Well, in the Psalms, lots of scholars divide it lots of different ways. I just did it my own. Okay, so this is uh, not exhaustive, but this is our thoughts and feelings and, and, and ideas in, in my life. That have been stirred up by the Psalms, Um, worship. My approach to worship, my ability to worship, how I worship, what I worship, who I worship, when I worship, my worship life has been stirred up by the Psalms. Contemplation. My quiet thinking about life, or thinking about God, or thinking about what's going on. My contemplation about things, stirred up by the Psalms. Repentance. These Psalms have moved me in repentance and helped me in my repentance. Um, more. Celebration. I find in these Psalms a celebration effect. Mourning. As in not daybreak, but as in um, uh, uh, sadness. Thanksgiving. Singing. Education. These psalms are fully educational. Prayer. All of these areas have been stirred up. Now, if these are the thoughts that are stirred up, how do the poets go about doing it? How do the psalms measure up as poetry? Do you suspect that if you were reading in the original Hebrew, you would be reading rhymes? No. And if you do read a rhyme, it would be purely accidental. Rhyming as a form of poetry is very much an English quality. Um, Shakespeare was real good at it. My father was not. But rhyming itself, until the free verse movement at least, rhyming itself was characteristic. It was a, a form of poetry. It's not rhyming that makes it a poem. What makes it a poem is it's a literary expression that the form of it is supposed to stir up your imagination and your emotions. That's what makes it a poem. Rhyming is just the way most of us learned it because that's our English tradition of poetry form. Similarly, we in English have a tradition of poetry form in in like couplets and stanzas and and all of that, you know, uh, haiku poetry, remember that, where it's all syllables, it's like I don't remember 575. five. Yeah, five seven five. I have your National Geographic. I forgot to give you last week. I brought it. Five seven five. Um, the um, um, sorry. The uh, Hebrew poetry is not rhyme and rhythm. The key to Hebrew poetry is what scholars call parallelism. Um, do you know why? Anybody in here take geometry? Do you know why parallel planes never meet? Because they take off from parallel runways. Um, <laughs> parallelism. <laughs> par- <laughs> I haven't told that joke since 10th grade. Parallelism is the key. Um, we just got in this morning from Lubbock. You'll excuse me if my brain's on, on remote control. By parallelism. This will be our theological term de jour. By parallelism, what do we mean? We mean a balanced pattern, where one line of poetry is compared to a following line. Now, you may be thinking, okay, he's just lost me, or maybe I lost you some time ago. Let me give you an example. Parallelism, let's take in its simplest form, it's two lines that complement each other. So, for example, I might say, I love apple pie. Okay, that's my first line. Now, my second line needs to complement it. So my second line is going to be, um, it tastes marvelous. Okay. I have just written some Hebrew poetry because I've got two lines that are kind of parallel. Now, Hebrew poetry, they don't have to mean the same thing. They can be opposites. So I can decide, no, 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 Instead of it tastes marvelous, I'm editing my poem here. Um, I love apple pie, squash tastes terrible. See, now that's still Hebrew poetry because it's still two lines that are parallel. It means we've got two lines or two stanzas that that are complementing each other, that are following the same train of thought. Does that make any sense? Okay, yes, no, maybe. Let me give you some, oh, (laughs) and you thought I'd written that poem, see, Okay, um, no. Let me let me tell you, when it comes to parallelism, there are in the Hebrew two different kinds. Y'all bear with me. Let's spend uh, five more minutes on the scholastic and then we'll go um, uh, into more practical. Parallelism, we've got two different kinds in the Hebrew. First is what is called internal parallelism. That's where you've got Two lines. You're just dealing with two lines that work together, and then the next two lines work together, and then the next two lines work together. If you have more than two lines, you have what's called external parallelism. We're not even going to deal with that this week. Internal, you've got three different kinds. It's all been divided up. One is called synonymous. And that's where your first and your second line mean the same thing, or about the same thing. It doesn't have to be precise. um, A second kind is going to be where they are opposites and a third kind added meaning. But let's start with synonymous. If by synonymous poem, we're going to have a poem that's got two lines that mean the same thing, where's an example? An example would be Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. You see how those two lines go together and mean the same thing? So, for example, the earth here is the same as the world. So the earth is the Lord's and everything in it means the world is the Lord's and all who live in it. And that's important. It's important we learn to start reading the Hebrew Psalms as poems because Otherwise, we tend to come to it with a 2003 mentality that's trying to find, okay, now he used this word here, but he used that word there, so this must mean something different. And, and, this is, and we start building great theologies upon things that aren't meant to hold great theologies. Okay? We start using the Bible to build our case for what things need to say instead of reading the Bible for what it says and being amazed and wondered by it. Okay? Um, a, a second example of synonymous, where it means the same, but it, it, it does it in a real poetic way that stirs your imagination. Day, this is Psalm 19.2. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Do you see how those mean the same things, even though the first one he's talking day after day? And the second one he uses night after night, but it means the same thing all the time. Day after day after day after day. The heavens are declaring the handiwork of God. Night after night after night after night. Both mean the same thing. It's just a poetic way of doing it. They pour forth speech. They display knowledge. In other words, they're saying, look at the wonders of God. If you get into the context of the psalm. So, parallelism, you can have two lines where the meaning is the same. You can also have two lines where the meaning is opposite. That's called antithetic. Uh, internal parallelism Uh, let's give an example of that Psalm 20 verse 8 they are brought to their knees and fall but we rise up and stand firm see how the two lines relate and yet you see how they're opposite one the bad guys are brought to their knees and they fall down but we the good guys do the exact opposite we rise up and we stand firm we don't fall So this is an example of the antithetic or opposite type of parallelism. A third is what's called synthetic. And this is where you got your first phrase, but your second phrase gives you a little bit more information. It's like kicking it up a notch, as Emeril would say, um, uh, if he's cooking. Um, Here's an example. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather be at the door letting the rain come down and being a servant to people coming in and out. I'd rather be a doorkeeper than to be inside the tents of the wicked. Living the life of luxury and letting other people do the work. It adds some some extra information. Um, um, But they're still related. You see, you've still got... I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather serve my Lord then be served with the wicked folks. And so you've got a little added meaning. Um, Those are the parallelisms. Um, I'm going to ignore external. We may talk about it next week some. But now let's talk about some of the content of the Psalms. And we've got a few that we're going to cover today. And we've got some more we'll cover next week because we need to uh, uh, savor this Some Psalms is something you don't do all at once. So let's take some time and look at them. Uh, The first psalm I want to talk to you about is a worship psalm. If you've got your Bible, open it to Psalm 135. If you don't have your Bible and you've lost it, we've got some in the back you can get after class or get next week before class. And you're welcome to them as long as you use them. Psalm 135 is um, called by some the Great Hallel Song. Let's, uh, let's Let's go to the... Overhead for a minute. Um, Okay, Hebrew scholars. No cheating, those of you who have actually taken it. Um, Let's let's look at at this for a moment. If uh, I told you that the Hebrew word for praise was built around three English sounds, what were they? H-L-L. And we know that Hebrew does not have um, um, vowels. Uh, They've got sounds that have been added to help us know how to pronounce it. But you take these three letters, you stick in all sorts of different vowel sounds, you get all sorts of different words, all centered around that idea of praise. All right? Now, you can take it and you can add an H-A-L sound... Halel, and to get that sound in English, we have to add an extra letter, an extra L. But H-A-L-L-E-L is Halel. And do you know what that means? Praise. Psalm 135 is called the Great Halel because it's a great praise psalm. Now, I'm going to tell you, we're, we're taking this Hebrew just so far. Y'all are going to be looking for a course. If I want to order you to do something in Hebrew... I want to order you to praise God or to serve God or to do something like that. What they would often do is they would take the word and they would add a U at the end. And the U is, is ordering, a U sound. Hallelujah is an order to praise. Okay? Y'all with me so far? Okay, who are we going to praise? Yahweh. Okay, well, we can't say his name, so what can we abbreviate it as? Yah. Yeah, Yeah. let's just praise Yah. And what do we have? Oh, you're speaking Hebrew. (laughs) Hallelujah is the first word that you're going to read if you're reading your Hebrew, Psalm 135. Now, it's translated by my NIV people as... Praise the Lord. You see, they did Lord with all capital letters because it's Yah. But here it's not actual Yahweh. It's just down in the footnote, it'll tell you Hebrew, Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Now, if you read Psalm 135, it reads, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. See, already now we're we're dealing with parallelism. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, you servants of the Lord. And this becomes parallel structure within itself. This is not like the easiest parallelism, but but it gives you an idea. Um, You servants of the Lord, you who minister in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. See, this is repetitive, idea, idea, idea. Praise Yahweh, hallelujah, because Yahweh is good. Sing praise to His name, because that is pleasant. Because the Lord has chosen Jacob to be His own, Israel to be His treasured possession. You can follow the couplets here. I know that Yahweh is great, that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Yahweh does whatever pleases Him. In the heavens... And on the earth, in the seas, and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain. He brings out the wind from its storehouses. Can you follow the poetry here? You follow the parallelism, how the same idea, this is external, it's more than just two lines. The same idea is being said over and over in different words. Now look also not only at the parallelism but the content here because I'm going to tell you why it's important in a moment. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of men and animals. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants. Keeps going. Bottom line it says is praise the Lord. Now, Hebrew commentaries uh, that exist back at the time of Christ teach us that this psalm was typically sung at the end of a Passover. That's one of the reasons it's called the Great Hallel, but it harkens back to the Passover. Remember, the Passover was when God passed over the Israelites as He slew the firstborn of the Egyptians, both men and beasts. Well, does this ring any bells to you? A song sung at the end of Passover? At the end of a Passover dinner? Are we ringing any bells yet? I would suggest that it does, because if you go back and you read what Jesus and His apostles did when they had their Passover feast right before the crucifixion, after the feast is over the gospels tell us they sang a song and then they went out to the mount of olives the song that they sang most likely assuming they followed hebrew tradition was the song that we have here it's psalm 135 this is what the lord as he instituted the lord's supper after it this is the psalm most likely he sang and that's not speculation that that pretty much is a general consensus opinion, Um, uh, barring something untoward. uh, That's certainly what Jews reading the gospel accounts would have thought had happened. Um, So we have here a worship psalm, and it's one that's very useful to us. By the way, it might be worthwhile to digress, since we've digressed this much already, into one other thing. The word worship is a great word. When you worship God, do you know what we're doing? Let's look at our English word. Our English word, worship, comes from two Anglo-Saxon words. The first one is worth, though they spelled it a little differently than we do. And the second word was skype, S-C-I-E-P-E. And um, we get the word ascribe from that. To worship means to ascribe worth. Worth. That's what to worship means. We worship God when we ascribe worth to God. Does that make sense? And English isn't so far off other languages. We can do funny things with our words too. So if worship means to ascribe worth, who would you ascribe worth to? Someone who has worth. Someone who is worth. Thee. And that's why we say and we read in Psalms, We worship you, Lord. We ascribe worth to you because you alone are worthy. You're the one that we, that, that has the worth. When we say, I worship um, my wife, I don't mean that in a sacrilegious way. I just think Becky's the most wonderful thing in the world. And when I say that, I am saying exactly she has worth. She has value. She's the most wonderful thing in the world to me. So I worship her. I ascribe worth to her. A um, hundred years ago, you would meet a judge or something, and you would say, "Your worship. And that was just a way of saying, you're honor. You know, you're someone who we give honor to, who we ascribe worth to. So um, scripturally, we have psalms that teach us to ascribe worth to God, to praise God. Because God is the one who did all these wonderful things. All right, next psalm. Let's look at uh, uh, a psalm um, that has uh, contemplation. Psalm 22, if you can open your Bible. A contemplation psalm. It's a psalm of thinking. You know, one of the things I would delight to do is spend enough time in Scripture to where I think scripturally. I'd like scripture not just to be on my mind, but to be in my heart. I had an acquaintance at a church I went to uh, uh, in my undergraduate schooling where um, he spoke scripture all the time. Frankly, we thought he was a weird nut. And looking back at it, he may have been. But. I wish I had had more appreciation for what he was able to do because his mind and his heart truly thought in scriptural terms. You think about, um, I've used Becky as this example before, Um, there's one thing to know Spanish, it's another thing to be fluent in Spanish, where you can think Spanish, where you dream Spanish, where you, you know, and, and when Becky lived in Argentina, she hit a point where she started dreaming in Spanish. You know, she's always been able to speak it as fluently as anybody I would know because I don't know Spanish outside of taco. But (laughs) I I can order in a restaurant. No no, no language gets between me and food, as you can see. But (laughs) Becky can do it all. But there's a difference between being able to do it all and actually being fluent. Reaching that point where the foreign language just becomes your language, where you take the word foreign out of it. And I would love to put Scripture into me so much that Scripture became my language. I thought that way. I'm convinced our Lord did. Psalm 22. Let's look at it together. You'll see what I'm talking about. Psalm 22 begins. By the way, it's got that title stuff. This is to be done to the tune of the Dough of the Morning. I think that's a Bob Dylan song. (laughs) That would explain why he uses the word groaning in it. Because that's the way Bob sings. Um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ring a bell? It should. Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Now we are Hebrew literate poets now. And we know what this parallel structure means. We understand as Hebrew poet scholars that to say, Why have you forsaken me to God? Is the same as saying, Why are you so far from saving me? It's the same as saying, So far from the words of my groaning. It's the statement, the plea of a man or woman who is feeling isolated from God, who is feeling that God is far from their needs. Yet these are also words that have a double meaning in Scripture, at least a double meaning. Because the poet who wrote these words was, I believe unknowingly, but I don't know, um, writing prophetically about our Lord and Savior. Jesus, you'll recall, when I put up the, the quotation earlier from Luke 24 where Jesus said that nothing will pass away until the words that are written about me in Moses, in the prophets, and in David come true? Psalm 22 is a psalm about our Lord and Savior, as well as a psalm that ministers to us. It's, it's not only one. It's, it's a multi-purpose psalm. So if you look at Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you look over in your margin here, do you see these little margin notes? Teach. Let's see. You see those? It's got Matthew 27, 46. These notes, by the way, deal with chapter 22, verse 1. That's the bold 22, 1 you see there. It's got Matthew 27, 46 with an asterisk. And then it's got Mark fifteen thirty-four with an asterisk. In the NIV, the asterisk means here's a place in the New Testament that quotes that verse. And if you went, you would be able to find in Matthew and Mark both gospel writers referencing Jesus hanging on the cross when Jesus proclaims in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, or Eli, Eli, Lama Sabakhtani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus in Aramaic starts speaking scripture in this psalm. Um, um, the, the psalm goes on, the, the psalm is loaded with messianic references. Uh, um, If you look on down in verse 17, for example, of the psalm, it says, I can count all my bones. Well, go up before that. Heavens, how have I missed this? Verse 16, if I can wedge it up there. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Does that sound messianic? Do you see Jesus on the cross? This is what comes to his mind. He's seeing his scripture fulfilled. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me as Jesus is alone on the cross, taking on our sin, which causes God by nature of God. God has no fellowship with sin. And when Jesus takes on our sin, Jesus is alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so... So far from the words of my groaning. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. We read the gospel account of the crucifixion, and the Jews are down there. Hey, you saved others. Why don't you save yourself? Where's your God now? Hot shot. They were taunting him. They were gloating over him psalm says, I can count all my bones. It says, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Go back and read Matthew 27, the crucifixion account. You'll see that they cast lots for Jesus' clothing. Um, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me deliver my life from the sword my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. Quoted in Hebrews, I might add. Um, This ends, let's go to the end of the psalm. It ends with, Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim the Lord's righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he is has done it. And the psalm ends. Declare God's righteousness to a people yet unborn because He has done it. Do you know what it means that He has done it? It is finished. Which are the last words of Jesus on the cross. And He gives up His spirit. A time of contemplation for us, but a time of contemplation for the Lord. It is in his deepest hour of despair that Jesus dwells upon this psalm from which he so clearly drew such great strength. There is not a doubt in my mind, not a doubt in my mind that God had this psalm in place, had the scripture in place to minister consolation to our Lord hanging on the cross at a time when God himself had to step back. Folks, we need to be so enmeshed in Scripture that what God has put there to encourage us at our times of despair comes to us. It dwells up. It bubbles up. It becomes the words we speak. It becomes the message we hear. I don't know many of us that are there. It's something we ought to all make a commitment to try and get to. We're going to deal with the psalms more next week, but I want to throw out a reading idea to you. Let me see if I can get to it here on the tablet to make a little more sense. Um, There are 150 psalms. I got this many, many years ago from Bill Gothard. It's great, great program. I don't know where he got it from. He may have made it up, um, but it's great. There are 150 psalms, and you have 30 days in a month. If you wanted to read through the psalms every month, To get that vital nourishment to stir your imagination and your emotions, you would need to read five Psalms a day. If you're going to do that, which I encourage you to do, don't read Psalm 1 through 5, Psalm 6 through 10 for a number of reasons. A, they don't flow that well. B, some days you'll read for a minute and some days you'll read for a year. (laughs) C, you'll lose track of which ones you're reading. D, if you skip a day, you don't know how you're going to fix it. So there's a better method. Whatever day of the month it is, you read that psalm, and then you add 30 until you get through five psalms. So today's November 1st. You read Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord which he meditates. He's like a tree planted by the rivers of the water of life that doesn't lose its leaf in season. I want to tell you. I want to tell you. Start doing it. You read Psalm 1. Then you read Psalm 31. You should just add 30. Then you read Psalm 61. Then you read Psalm 91. Then you read 121. And you're done. The next day you'll read Psalm 2, 32, 62, 92. If you skip a day, you don't go to hell. You just get started again the next day. So if you skip two days, on the 5th, you read Psalm 5, 35, 65, 95, 125. And I want to tell you something about uh, this program that I love. And I followed this, read the Psalms every day like this for over 10 years. You're reading the entire book of Psalms every month when you do this. And I'm telling you, the things that you read in there that just speak God will minister to you like crazy if you do that. But in the process, I've picked up a couple of secrets. Number one, the Psalms flow together real well when, when put together like this. It's, in, it's, it's uncanny how well the themes follow. The 24th day of the month, which is my little sister's birthday in July, I, I love the 24th of the month because Psalm 24, 54, 84, 114, and 144 are some of my favorite Psalms. And and you'll start relating Psalms to certain days. I mean, you, you, I'll also tell you, on the 29th day of the month, get started real early. <laughs> That's the day you've got to read Psalm 119. That baby will put you to sleep. It is the longest chapter in the Bible for a very good reason. It's one where they took each letter of the Hebrew alphabet and they weren't happy with doing just one verse with each letter. They did eight with each. So you've got like, Yeah, 18,000 gazillion verses, all about the law of the Lord. Get started early on the 29th. But it's a wonderful reading program. Now, next week we will look more at Psalms, but I don't want to dismiss without a prayer. Lord, thank you for a chance to learn more about your word. Um, Thank you for uh, the insight that abounds out uh, uh, among your people um, that, that we have to draw from. Uh, Thank you for the way you have spoken through Scripture in ways that inspire us, in ways that, that console us, in ways that encourage us, in ways that minister to us, in ways that teach us, in ways that stir our emotions and our imaginations up. Your grandeur and the grandeur of your Bible, Lord, amazes us even today. We do give you praise and honor and worship because we truly see you worthy of such. Your ways are beyond anything we can imagine and it's so much fun just to catch an aroma of the wonders you have cooked up for us. We love you and adore you as your children and your people. Bring us back together, Lord. In Jesus we pray, amen.